church family. It's great to be with you guys. Man, it's so good to see God's house so full in both services. God's doing something special here at Life Church Buffalo. If you're new, my name is Pete. I serve as the lead pastor, and whether you're in the room or you're joining us online, thank you for starting your week off with us. As we are really in an important series in our church, really it's a season for our church. We started the year by doing a series called Soul Detox, where we wanted to remove some of the spiritual toxins that are robbing us of the abundant life that Jesus came to bring us. And we followed that series with this one we're in right now called Bury Your Ordinary, based on this book written by Justin Kendrick, where we are talking about how do we now put into our lives some practical habits that will cause our fire and love for Jesus to come fully alive. Because habits form patterns. And patterns are shaping our lives. And if we want to ignite our passion for God, we have to adjust our pattern. And the habits that he talks about in this book and that we're talking about in this series is really intended to help us discover a Christian experience that goes beyond the mundane that many of us have been walking in. Some of you are like, man, I'm following Jesus, but man, I've heard that there's more. I've heard it's supposed to be an adventure, but that's not what I've experienced. And I'm hoping and praying through this series that God will make your experience and your relationship with Jesus one that's more exciting, more adventurous. Last week, we talked about habit number one of seven in the book and the habit of relationship. And I hope that many of you this week took some extra time in the morning to begin each day by spending time in God's presence, opening his word, letting him speak to you, uh, praying. And, and maybe you didn't get as many days as you wanted or as much time as you wanted. I want to encourage you. Listen, it takes time to develop new habits. So don't get discouraged. Maybe you only got 15 or 20 minutes each day this week. You know, keep, keep stretching. Keep growing, keep developing that discipline and that muscle of, of learning how to just sit still with the Lord and, and spend time in his presence. Today we're going to jump into habit number two, and I want to set it up with a question. How many of you really like being comfortable? Anybody like being comfortable? Maybe half of you. The rest of you are either liars or you're weird and you really like being uncomfortable But I like being comfortable. I love comfortable clothes. I love comfortable furniture. I love comfortable conversations. I really like comfort food. We are wired as human beings to pursue comfort. In fact, sociologists say that human beings are largely motivated by one of two primary base motivations. Behind our reasons for doing anything in life, it's one of these two things. What will bring me pleasure or comfort? And what will help me avoid pain? 
Behind every decision you make in life lies the motivation to either pursue comfort or avoid pain. We are wired this way. I've discovered in my own life that, you know, as soon as a new comfort is introduced, my mind quickly moves it from a luxury to a necessity. You know what I'm talking about? It's kind of like, you know, heated seats in your car. Once upon a time, I looked at that feature, man, wouldn't it be nice if I had heated seats? And now that I have heated seats in my car, I don't ever want to imagine my life without heated seats, especially with winters here in Buffalo or the comfort of reclining seats in a movie theater. You know what I'm talking about? Like a year and a half ago, I took my family to go see uh, Spider-Man No Way Home and we went to a Regal Cinema and I was under the assumption that all Regal Cinemas had converted their seats to the new Lazy Boy-style recliner seats. You know what I'm talking about where you can like kick all the way back and it's nice and big and, and comfortable and uh, I didn't know that this particular theater hadn't yet converted their seats. And so when we walked into the theater and it was those old plastic sticky seats that were narrow and you're super close to the person next to you and you can't recline, we walked out of the theater and I said, Kelly, that was one of the most unenjoyable two and a half hours I've ever experienced. Before I even talked about the movie, I said, I will never, never go see another movie again unless I know for sure that it has lazy boy recliner style seats. Because I like to be comfortable. I think most of us like to be comfortable. It's, it's so wired into our culture that culture has given pretty you know, strict guidelines about what is and isn't acceptable topics to talk about in public settings. You know, if you've been in the workplace, no doubt you've heard that, you know, when it comes to politics and religion, it's out of bounds, right? It's, it's no go. That's a danger zone. And so we're told that there are things that we can't talk about because it's, it's uncomfortable for people. Our culture has embraced what sociologists call expressive individualism. You know, in most social circles, people aren't going to give you a hard time for being a Christian as long as you keep it to yourself, right? Pushing your beliefs on someone else is highly frowned upon. And in our culture, expressive individualism is the conviction that one belief or religion cannot be better or more true than another. And to claim that your belief is better or more true than another is the epitome of arrogance and intolerance. You know, in previous generations, to be tolerant simply meant that you were respectful of other people, even if you felt their convictions were wrong. But in our culture today, to be tolerant means that you have to accept everyone's beliefs as equally valid and true, which leaves the follower of Jesus in an incredibly difficult position. Because we believe that God became a man in Jesus Christ who died on the cross for sins and rose again three days later. We believe that a person must turn to him in faith to receive forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And Jesus boldly proclaimed that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through him. In one sense, the gospel is incredibly inclusive in that people from all nations, race, tribe, and tongue are welcome to come and receive freely from the grace of God. In another sense, his call is incredibly exclusive because you must come to him and you must come by way of the cross because there is no other way to salvation. And this leaves the follower of Jesus feeling uncomfortably out of step with the times. 
How do we talk to other people about Jesus in a culture like ours? And as soon as this topic comes up, a lot of Christians get really sheepish and, and squeamish. They're like, well, I, I don't feel comfortable talking about my faith to people. I don't, I don't know what to say. And I don't really know much about that, that much about the Bible. And, you know, I don't really want to come off as, as pushy. I don't want to offend anybody. Besides, I got my own problems to worry about. I got, I got bills to pay, and I'm too busy carving out a nice, comfortable life for myself. So I don't have time to really, you know, venture into that uncomfortable place of talking to people about Jesus. We feel this pressure to kind of blend in with culture, which is something called syncretism. Syncretism is the belief that all religions offer some truth, and that all religions are just different paths to God. And our culture would say it's dishonoring and disrespectful to say that you have found the truth and the only way to God. And so we feel this pressure to be quiet about our faith because it's uncomfortable. The thought of sharing your faith is incredibly uncomfortable because you don't want to offend anybody. You just want to kind of blend in the syncretism. Now, on the other hand, Many of you are so afraid of syncretism and of aligning with the world that you have instead ventured into sectarianism where you've created this Christian cocoon around yourself and you have completely isolated yourself from the world around you. You have your Christian spouse. You only have Christian friends. You wear Christian t-shirts. You drive a Christian car while listening to Christian music. And on the way home, you get Christian chicken for dinner. And you have completely separated yourself from the world around you. That's called sectarianism. And what you don't realize what's happening is that in your attempt to be holy and separate from the world, you have completely disconnected yourself from the world that God has placed you in and has called you to reach the people in your world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as a result the fire of your love for God begins to grow cold. And you might be here today and maybe you've been following Jesus for five or 10 or, I don't know, 50 years. You've been doing all the Jesus stuff. But if you were to be honest, you would say, man, there's, there's just something off. I don't, there's not any excitement about my faith. You would say, man, why do I feel so distant from God, why do I see, feel so far off? Can I s suggest to you today that maybe you feel that way because you're living with a deep inconsistency in your life? Because what you say you believe about God's grace doesn't match up with what you talk about when it comes to God's grace, or should I say not talk about? Because if you really believe that there is a God who loves the whole world, and that his spirit lives in you and will empower you to live on mission, then that love that's been poured out into your heart through the Holy Spirit and the spirit that lives inside of you will propel you out and compel you to share the hope and the love and the message of Jesus with those around you. That's what Jesus has called us to do. Before he ascended to the Father, he said in Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere. And his first disciples were his witnesses. They told people about Jesus everywhere they went. And the message of Jesus spread rapidly. When you read the book of Acts, you read about the explosive growth of the church 
in the years that followed Jesus' resurrection and his ascension. Historians tell us that in 40 AD, so about 10 years after Jesus' ascension, approximately 0.0017% of the Roman Empire were Christian. Just maybe 10, 20,000 people. But by the year 350 AD, just over 300 years later, of the 60 million people in the Roman Empire, 33 million of them were Christian. In just over 300 years, we saw 33 million people make a decision to place their faith in Jesus Christ because something happens when God's grace gets a hold of your life where you just, I've got to share this. I can't keep this to myself. I've got to get it out. I've got to tell other people. And we experience this in every area of our life, don't we? When we experience something great, when we go to an awesome restaurant and we have a great meal, man, I got to talk about this. I got to tell people they need to check this out. This place is amazing. When you're scrolling social media and you come across a, a funny video or a reel that, that, that just strikes you funny, like, what do you do? You hit like and then you hit share. Because I got to share this. I want to spread the joy. When you have a great experience with customer service with a company, there's something that compels you to share it with others. Why should it be any less true when it comes to our faith? In fact, if anything, there should be more of a compulsion to say, man, I've got to share this. When you realize, when you experience God's grace, when you feel his love, when you know what he did to purchase your forgiveness, when you feel the freedom and the joy that comes from relationship with him, something gets a hold of you where you say, man, I have got to share this with other people. I can't keep this to myself. It should radiate from our lives. And that is habit number two that we're going to talk about today. Radiance. Radiance. Sharing your faith as a way of life. See, our calling as Christians is to know God. Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they would know you. Right? That's relationship. Habit number one. And make him known. We should know God and make him known. And the closer we get to God and the more we develop our relationship with Jesus, the spirit of God inside of you will propel you outward to share the hope of Jesus and the love that changed your life. Timothy Keller says it this way. He says, anybody who's actually encountered the real biblical God is always propelled out. If you do not sense that you're propelled out, almost under an inner compulsion, to bear witness to the life-changing, world-changing relationship with God, then you don't have one. As the love of God grows within me, it will push you outside your comfort zone to share the love of Jesus with people in your personal world. The closer you get to God, the more your heart will align with his the more you will feel his heart for his lost sons and daughters. The more you will feel a burden for the people in your life that are still far from God, that haven't yet experienced the grace of Jesus Christ. The hope that comes from him, the peace that comes from him, the joy that comes from him. You feel this burden for the people in your life. The Apostle Paul writes about this burden in Romans chapters 9 and 10. Where he writes, with Christ as my witness, I speak with utter truthfulness. My conscience and the Holy Spirit confirm it. 
My heart is filled with bitter sorrow and unending grief for my people, my Jewish brothers and sisters. And then in chapter 10, talking about the same thing, he says, the longing of my heart and my prayer to God is for the people of Israel to be saved. Paul's heart ached for the salvation of his fellow Jewish brothers and sisters. It was his driving motivation to do what he did, to keep preaching the good news, to share Jesus with as many people as he possibly could. Let me ask you a question this morning. Does your heart ache for people who are far from God in your life? Do you feel sorrow and grief like Paul when you think about their eternal destiny? Because as we learn to love God more deeply, that love will always drive you to consider the eternal destiny of your loved ones. Paul's bitter sorrow and unending grief stemmed from the knowledge that there were people that he knew and loved that were headed for a Christless eternity. And I know that hell is probably one of the most off-putting and offensive and repulsive doctrines, uncomfortable topics in all of Scripture. In fact, professor of philosophy Peter Kreeft writes, of all the doctrines in Christianity, hell is probably the most difficult to defend, the most burdensome to believe, and the first to be abandoned. And there's a lot of people who agree with him. Many people are appalled at the idea or suggestion that there is an eternal place of punishment reserved for people who don't believe in or follow Jesus. The author in the book suggests that there are three different categories of Christians when it comes to this topic of hell. And the first category are people who don't believe that there actually is a hell, that we have misunderstood and misinterpreted the scriptures and that there actually isn't a hell which in my opinion is a false teaching that's been around since the very first century, is still around today, in fact, is growing in many uh, circles of Christians today. You know, they, they believe in Jesus, they believe in forgiveness, they believe in heaven, but they stop at hell. They say, how could an all-loving God condemn someone to eternal punishment? And their conclusion is that he can't or that he won't, which is appealing to a lot of people for a lot of reasons. And within this category of people who don't believe that there is a hell, there are two kind of subgroups. There are those who, uh, it's called annihilationism, that rather than believing that God would punish someone for eternity, he instead simply extinguishes the souls who, of those who are not believers. That those people, once they die, they don't live forever, they just cease to exist. They don't go to heaven, but they don't go to hell. It's annihilationism. On the other hand, there are a group of people who believe that in the end, everyone makes it into heaven. That's a belief called universalism. But the problem with either of those two things in this camp of those who don't believe in hell is that you have to edit out massive sections of scripture that talk about hell, including and especially the words of Jesus himself, who was the one who most directly talked about the existence of hell. If you were to divide Jesus' teachings into various topics, 13% of his teachings and over half of his parables were about hell, judgment, punishment, and the wrath of God. Matthew 25 is one example of this. Speaking of his second coming and of judgment day, Jesus said this, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared 
for the devil and his angels. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. So if you want to get rid of hell, then you kind of got to get rid of Jesus, or at least half of Jesus' teachings. Because we can't escape the fact that hell, just as much as God's love and grace and forgiveness and mercy, is a central New Testament Jesus-driven teaching that the Apostle Paul upholds in his letter to the Thessalonians when he writes, speaking of the end times, Jesus will come with his mighty angels in flaming fire, bringing judgment on those who don't know God and on those who refuse to obey the good news of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with eternal destruction, forever separated from the Lord and from his glorious power. So you have to do some pretty interesting and impressive theological gymnastics to make a case that hell doesn't exist or that there is no hell when you look at the verses that we see in Scripture. So that's the first category. The second category of Christians are those who say they believe in hell but live as if it's not real. There are many Christians who say they believe in the Bible and say that they believe that hell is real, but because they're not really spending much time actually reading the Bible, hell is not really at the forefront of their minds. And because they don't really think or live with an eternal mindset, they don't experience the same grief and sorrow that Paul talked about when he thought about the people that he knew that hadn't yet come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And this, sadly, I think, represents probably the greatest number of Christians today. People who say they believe in hell but don't live as if it's real. My hope and my prayer is that as we talk about this message today and go through the series, that we would move into category number three, which is people who allow, allow the reality of eternity and of hell to shake us and change us. Because although a belief in a literal hell will create an immense amount of discomfort for us, it will also in, increase dramatically our love and our compassion for the people in our lives who don't yet know Jesus. Because as our love for God grows, and as the, as the reality of eternity becomes more real to us, our hearts will begin to ache for those that we know that don't yet know Jesus, who are still far from God, and we will begin praying for them with a certain sense of urgency. We know that God doesn't want anyone to perish. First Timothy 2.4 tells us that. But we also know that God's justice requires judgment for sin, Romans 3.26, which is what makes the sacrifice of Jesus that much more incredible because he took the wrath of God upon himself so that we wouldn't have to, satisfying the justice of God while at the same time displaying his love for humanity. God's love and justice meet at the cross. That is the good news of God's grace, and that is what every follower of Jesus should be willing to share with the people in their lives. I've got to share this. We can't keep this good news to ourselves. I saw somebody earlier this week share a video from an atheist. I think it was um, one of the guys from Penn and Teller who talked about, he's like, I don't, I don't have an issue with Christians who talk about their faith or try to proselytize or convert people because if you truly believe that there is eternal life and eternal punishment, he makes the case, he says, how much do you have to hate somebody to not tell them that there is a way for salvation? 
There should be something in us that says, man, I can't, I can't keep this to myself. I've got to share this. We've got to be willing to step outside of our comfort zone and share our faith with others. Now, I get it. Listen, I know that we have all seen or experienced people who share their faith with others in a way that makes, that makes you cringe and that makes you want to kind of distance yourself from them as quickly and as far as you can. You know what I'm talking about? You're like, you listen to someone sharing their faith, and you're like, I do not want to be associated with that person. The author talks about three different types of people that share their faith, maybe with, you know, good intentions, but they use the wrong motives and they use the wrong approach. And I've heard these same three analogies in other places as well, but he talks about the sergeant, the salesman, and the sage. The sergeant is the person who you know, just shoves Jesus down people's throats like a brash military officer. You know, this is the, the, the typical guy you see on the street corner with, you know, placards and billboards and a bullhorn saying, you better turn or you're gonna burn in hell. Like God hates people, like this is the sergeant. And somebody who has the sergeant mindset, you know, who offends people left and right, because listen, our culture, this is like the biggest turnoff to Christianity is this type of person. And the sergeant will say, man, Jesus offended people all the time. I'm simply following in the footsteps of Jesus. No, you're not. Jesus offended religious people. Sinners were drawn to Jesus. He never sugarcoated anything, and he never stopped short of calling sin, sin. But sinners who were around Jesus felt drawn to him and felt loved by him. Almost as bad as the sergeant is the salesman who presents Jesus like a no-money-down loan from the credit union. Like he's got his sales pitch and his brochure and, you know, he's got his canned speech and, you know, he's slick and he's got it all down. And, and listen, our culture is allergic to salesmen. But then there's the sage. Also ineffective, maybe right-hearted, but the sage will talk to non-believers about spiritual things, about wholeness, but never actually talk about Jesus. They'll talk to their friends about dating advice, about the practice of meditation, which in and of itself isn't a bad approach to start a conversation with someone. But if you're not intentional about steering the conversation to Jesus and the cross and the resurrection, then there can be no real change. And so we need a different approach to sharing our faith than the sergeant, the salesman, or the sage. And the Apostle Paul gives us that approach in his letter to the church at Colossae, which is in modern day Turkey. He writes in Colossians chapter four, verses two through six, some pretty practical advice. He says, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful, and pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. I wanna unpack this for us. I love this because he says the first step to becoming an effective witness for Christ begins by devoting yourself to prayer, which we talked about last week. 
Do you pray for those who are far from God in your life? Do you see how habit one, the habit of relationship, spending time with God fuels habit two? The more you spend time in his presence, the more you have this sense of urgency. You feel God's heart for people who are still far from him. And you pray for them. You devote yourself to prayer. And I want to encourage you that as you're praying for the people in your life who are far from God, and pray for them by name, pray for two things. Pray for two things specifically, the same two things that Paul mentions here. Pray for open doors and pray for clarity to talk about God's grace clearly. Because we have a tendency to sometimes make it more complicated than it really is. Pray for opportunities to share the gospel with people and pray that when those opportunities arrive, that you would have the ability to communicate what God has done in your life with clarity. And listen, that is a prayer that God will answer all day, every day, and twice on Sunday. Like when you pray, God, give me opportunities to talk to people about your love and your grace. Help me to communicate it clearly. God says, okay, I'm gonna create opportunities for you. Actually, I think he probably just makes you aware of the opportunities that have actually been there all along. God creates opportunities in response to prayer for the gospel to be heard. A classmate or a coworker will strike up a conversation with you at lunchtime and all of a sudden you realize, oh, here's an opportunity. Maybe somebody will call you, a friend will call you who's going through a hard time and they'll wanna get together for, for coffee. And while you're talking, you realize, hey, here's an open door. So it begins with prayer. Pray for open doors. Pray for the ability to speak clearly the grace of God. And then Paul continues his instruction in verse five by saying, be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. There's that word again. He tells us to be wise. Now, wisdom is different than knowledge, which is a good thing for those of us who don't feel like we have enough Bible knowledge to share our faith with people. Because not once in here does he tell us that there is a certain amount of knowledge we need before we start sharing our faith with people. That's not one of the ingredients. You don't need to have 26 Bible verses memorized. You don't need to know the Roman road. You don't need to know the essential doctrines of the Christian faith to tell people about how Jesus has changed your life. But you do need wisdom. How is wisdom different than knowledge? Wisdom knows how to take and use the right words at the right time and said in the right way. Wisdom leans into and listens first to a person's story. They get to know a person. They hear their heartbeat. They find out what they're going through and what their, what their need is. And then they use wisdom to bring Jesus into the conversation in a natural way. Wisdom knows how to custom fit the unchanging truths of Jesus and present them in the ever-changing needs of our environment. That's wisdom. It's being able to be sensitive to the needs of the moment and custom fit the message of Jesus into a situation that's gonna be different every time you talk to someone and you use the right words at the right time said in the right way. This is what Jesus did all the time. Think about how he struck up a conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter four. He didn't just jump right out of the gate saying, hey, you're, you know, you've slept with five people and the one you're living with now is not your husband. No, he, she would have been like, who the heck are you? I'm out of here. No, what did he do? He said, hey, can I have a drink? A pretty normal and pertinent question to ask somebody when you're at a well. And then he grabbed her attention when she responded by saying, well, how is it that you, a Jewish man, would ask me, a Samaritan woman, 
for a drink. And he grabbed her attention by saying, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that asked you, you would ask me for a drink and I would give you living water and you would never thirst again. He connected her felt need, which was thirst, to her spiritual need, which was grace, which prompted a conversation that ultimately resulted in her placing her faith and trust in him as the Messiah and Savior of the world. Jesus didn't have a, you know, canned speech with memorized talking points that he used every time he engaged with someone. He used wisdom to find out who they were and where they were at, and he, he spoke the right words in the right way at the right time. And that's what we're called to do. Use wisdom. Some of you are like, man, I, that was Jesus, and I don't have that kind of wisdom. I would never be able to do that. I got a really great promise for you. And it's found in James chapter 1, verse 5. It says, if any of you lacks wisdom, who lacks wisdom here? I'm going to put two hands up. If any of you lacks wisdom, what do we need to do? Ask God. Who gives what? Who gives generously to all without finding fault. It's not like he says, oh, well, wait, you've got this sin in your life. I can't give you wisdom. Oh, wait, you're not qualified enough. I can't give you wisdom. No, when we ask God, he gives generously to all without finding fault. That's a pretty incredible promise to know that when we start our day with prayer, asking God for open doors and for clarity, walk out your door every single day, believing in faith that God will give you the wisdom you need at every opportunity at school, at work, at the grocery store, at the bank, at the barber shop, when you're sitting there for an hour talking about who knows what at the Tim Hortons drive through line? Because guess what? That person that's handing you your coffee is not a robot. They're a real human being that's going through stuff. They have real needs, real problems, real hopes, real dreams. So just make the most of every opportunity. We don't realize how many opportunities pass us every single day to share the hope and love of Jesus with people. But we've got to have wisdom. We've got to have wisdom to make the most of every opportunity. Have your spiritual antennas up for those divine appointments, those moments where you realize someone's heart is opening up and you realize, I have an opportunity to share Jesus with them right now. It doesn't have to be this like long discourse and explanation of everything that the Bible says about faith in Jesus. No, it's like, hey, it seems like you're going through a hard time. Can I pray for you? Use wisdom to make the most of every opportunity. And then once those opportunities present themselves, Paul gives us instructions on what we should talk about. Verse six, he says, let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Let your conversation always be full of grace. What should you talk about? Talk about grace. That's the secret to talking to people about Jesus. You don't need eloquent words. In fact, the more honest and raw and real you are and the less polished and the less of a presentation you give, the more people are gonna be open and receptive. You talk about grace. You talk about how his kindness has captured your heart. You talk about how he has healed parts of your heart that you didn't even know needed to be healed. You talk about how he comforts you when you're grieving. You talk, you don't have to answer all of their questions. You don't have to solve all their problems. 
You just talk about your experience with God's grace. And you do it in a way that connects with their story because you've used wisdom to learn about their story. Now you're trying to connect your story with theirs. It's like those of you who are fans of the show, The Chosen, I think it was in season one when Mary Magdalene is trying to explain to Nicodemus, who's trying to figure out how she was delivered from demonic oppression and possession. And and she says, I don't know what to tell you except to say that I used to be one way and now I'm different. And in between was him. That's grace. Talk about the unearned, undeserved favor of God in your life. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Talk about grace. And then make sure you season it with salt. How many of you like salt here? I love salt. I put salt on just about everything I eat. I put salt on it before I even taste it because nine times out of ten, it doesn't have enough salt on it. And salt enhances the flavor. It amplifies the flavor of whatever it is you're eating, right? An unseasoned steak is blah. But a steak that's perfectly seasoned with the right amount of salt and pepper, mm, it's exquisite. There's nothing like a perfectly seasoned steak. So when you talk about Jesus, don't serve bland, unseasoned steak. Add some salt to it. Talk about his goodness. Talk about his mercy. Talk about how he comforts you when you're grieving. Talk about how you have a peace that passes understanding when everything around you would would say that you should be confused and anxious and worried. Talk about how he delivers the oppressed. Add some salt to it. There's a verse in the Bible that says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 34, I think. Listen, we are the body of Christ, right? We are the representation of Jesus to this world. And the only taste that the people in this world are going to get of Jesus is the taste that's left in their mouths after they interact with you. So what are they tasting? Is it a blah, unseasoned steak? Or is it salty? Listen, season it with salt. You are the flavor of the Savior. So season your speech with salt and talk about all of the good things that God has done in your life. And so here we have four key ingredients to living a life of radiance. If you're taking notes, write this down or take a picture of the screen. It begins with prayer where you invite God to work. You ask for open doors. You ask for clarity. You pray for the people in your life that God would open their eyes to their need for him. And then use wisdom to lean into their stories. Be attentive, be available, be intentional. Ask God to give you wisdom to use the right words said at the right time in the right way. And talk about grace. Talk about the kindness of God in your life and add some salt to it. Give others a taste of God's love. And if we will commit to doing this, if you will commit to intentionally sharing your faith with other people on a regular basis, something is going to happen on the inside of you. Whether you've been following Jesus for 30 days or 30 years, sharing your faith will ignite a spiritual fire on the inside of you and grow your dependence on God like nothing else. Your relationship with God will get stronger. Your hunger for his word will increase. Your commitment to prayer will be like never before. 
as you realize how much you need him to give you wisdom, and as you feel that burden for people in your life who are still far from God begin to grow, the more regularly that you share your faith, the more real your faith becomes to you. And so here's my challenge to you this week, okay? I'm gonna give you four quick things and then we're gonna pray. First thing I want you to do, if you're taking notes, write this down. I want you to write the names of three people in your life who are far from God. And I want you to commit to praying for them this week, praying every day for, that, for those three people. You're in the habit of relationship now, so hopefully you have a prayer journal of some kind or you know, a notes app in your phone, someplace where you're keeping track of what God speaks to you in prayer and you know, the things that you feel you know, during your quiet time with God and the things that you are wanting to remember to pray for every day. Write the names of three people down in that prayer journal and commit to praying for them every single day this week. And I want to remind you of something. In week one of this series, I told you about the personal prayer guide that we have available on our prayer page. There are seven different patterns for prayer, and one of those patterns is praying for those who need God. On page 49 of that PDF is a scripted prayer. If you don't yet know really how to pray, there are specific prompts to give you to pray for the people in your life who are still far from God. Number one, ask the Father to draw them to Jesus. There's a verse and then a prayer script where you just fill in the blank of the name of the person you're praying for. Number two, bind the spirit that blinds their minds. There's a verse and then a prayer that you can just read and fill in the name of the person you're praying for. Number three, pray that they may have a personal relationship with God. Again, there's a verse and a prayer script. Pray for believers to cross their paths. So I would encourage you, if you're still growing in the discipline of prayer, Download this prayer guide to help you learn how to pray for those people. Second thing I want you to do is then pick one of those three names and I want you to reach out to them this week. Ask them out for coffee or dinner or breakfast, whatever is convenient for you, and initiate a spiritual conversation with them. And some of you are like, oh my gosh, I don't know if I can do that. You can do it. Ask God for wisdom. Share your grace story with them find a point in their story as you ask them questions about what's happening in their lives where you can find a way to bring Jesus into the conversation. One person, one conversation this week from that list of three. The third thing I want you to do is invite them to church with you next week. Just bring them to church. Let them experience God's presence in worship. Let them sit under the teaching of God's word. Let the Holy Spirit begin to continue what we're believing he's already doing in their lives and softening their hearts, making them more open to him. And the fourth thing I want you to do, and this is gonna be really outside many of your comfort zones, is to keep your antennas up for someone that you can pray for in the moment. Like maybe it's a conversation with a classmate or a coworker where it seems like they're going through a hard time. Maybe it seems like something's just off with somebody, or maybe it's a waitress or a waiter at a restaurant who seems like they're just flustered. Ask them this question, hey, is there anything I can pray for you about? Nine times out of 10, they'll say, Yes, maybe they might say no, but if they say yes, don't just say, I'll pray for you and then go on your way. I want you to surprise them and say, okay, let's pray right now. It might feel awkward. It might make you really uncomfortable, but watch what happens when God just touches someone's heart through your faithful obedience to simply speak Jesus over their situation. So write the names of three people down and pray for them every day this week. Call one of those people and start a spiritual conversation with them. Invite them to church and pray for one person this week. Listen, the reality of eternity demands that we start living with a sense of urgency in our hearts. So let's be radiant Christians. 
who share our faith as a way of life. Amen? Let me pray for us today. God, I know that this is a challenge for many of us. This is outside our comfort zones, but Lord, I know that you have not called us to live a life of comfort and complacency. You've called us to follow Jesus, who told us to be his witnesses and to tell people about him everywhere we go. Lord, help us to accept the personal responsibility we have as Christians to share our faith with others. That this isn't just reserved for the evangelist. This isn't just reserved for the pastor who preaches on Sunday. This is every follower of Jesus' responsibility to share our faith with others. So God, I pray right now that you would give your people wisdom as they commit to continuing in the, in the habit of relationship and seeking you, starting their day with prayer. God, I pray that they would begin to ask you for open doors of opportunity to share their faith and that you would give them clarity of speech to make the gospel of grace easy to understand. God, I pray that you give them wisdom to discern the needs of the moment, to, to say the right words at the right time in the right way. God, I pray that when those opportunities present themselves, that they would just be compelled to talk about your grace and how you've changed their life and let them add some salt to it and talk about all of the different ways that you have changed them and all of your attributes and all of your goodness. And God, we pray right now. I pray for every name that's gonna be written down on a prayer sheet or a prayer journal this week. I pray for their hearts, even in advance of the conversations that are gonna be had with them this week. Lord, we know that you said no one comes to the Father unless your Spirit draws them. So I pray right now that your Holy Spirit would begin softening the hearts of people that we are even now beginning to commit to praying for. Soften the hearts of people who are going to receive a phone call from us this week. Before we even enter that conversation with them, God, would you begin to open up the eyes of their understanding to make them aware of their need for you. God, and I thank you in advance for those who will make decisions to place their faith in you because of our obedience to be radiant Christians, to be, to be people who are so consumed and grateful for your grace in our lives that we've just got to share it because we can't keep it to ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I'm praying for you this week, church. I'm believing that God's gonna give you the wisdom you need and the courage you need to reach out to those people and start that conversation. And then watch what happens in your relationship with God as you commit to doing this on a regular basis. Your dependence on God, your fire and your hunger for more of him is gonna go through the roof. I have never met a spiritually tepid Christian who shares their faith on a regular basis. People who talk about Jesus a lot always seem to be on fire for God. There's a reason for that. And that's what I'm praying for you guys. So as our Dream Team members now get into position to serve you with excellence on your way out, I want to remind the rest of you that if there's anything that's going on in your life that you need or want prayer for, it would be our honor to lift that need up to the Father in prayer. We've got a prayer team that's always available in the back right corner of the auditorium in our prayer room. They would love to pray with you and to pray for you. And uh, next week, as you bring somebody with you, because that's one of the challenges, that's part of your homework this week, if you will, we're going to talk about habit number three, which is the habit of receptivity, learning to hear the voice of God. And so church, I love you so much. I'm praying for you this week as you are radiant Christians and you intentionally share your faith with others this week. Go in peace. Have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday.